Hey, Dog Walk listeners, you can find every episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. All right, Bimang, today is Friday. It's March 31st. Welcome to the Dog Walk, uh, presented by Barstool Sports. Uh, another Chicago Friday for you here. Today, we're actually joined by former Illinois governor, Rob Agoyevich. Rod, how are you? Thanks for doing this. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Yeti. How's, uh, how's, um, how, how's it been on the outside again, man? How are <laughs> how, how you feeling? What's it been like? How's freedom? Yes. <laughs> it's fucking golden. <laughs> yeah, <I> bet, <laughs> to quote me. Yeah, I bet, dude. We went to your, um, what was it, the day you got out? There was a bunch of people outside your house? Yeah. We yeah. went to that. I remember it was pandemonium out there. Right, that night, the midnight when I got... Oh, the day after. The day when I after, spoke? yes, you yes. spoke. Yeah, right. we were there. Yeah, it yeah. was pandemonium. It I was remember. crazy. There were people getting that. in fights out there and shit. It was nuts. Well, you guys asked me because your listeners should know, and, and those who are watching, that you guys are very kind hosts because they they politely asked me how should we address you, and, and I said whatever you want. And you know, I would suggest you may want to, if you want a full in full disclosure, address me as Governor Blagojevich and. Former inmate number four zero eight nine two four two four. What? So, so what's that like? So, I mean, it sucks. Yeah. Well, of course it does. Look, it was a lot better being governor, right? The food's a lot better. You don't, you don't, you don't have to wait in line, and you get to sleep in your own bed. What was the worst food you had in, in the joint? I mean, that's a question that would probably take it the whole show to answer because the food was bad across the board. It was yeah. just. It was not good. But nothing gives you like, man, that I don't know what that shit was. That like gives you wakes you up at night. You know, you're doing blocks around Ravenswood thinking about that shit. There were there were episodes because I was there so long. It was yeah. almost eight years. It was two thousand eight hundred ninety six days. Not that I was counting them, right? <laughs> but one month short of eight years. And uh there were times during that long journey where there'd be food poisoning outbreaks. Oh, then no. the, the several inmates would have to be seek medical attention, and they'd close things down because of the rapid food poisoning epidemic that would run through the prison. That's happened on a few occasions during oh, those shit. eight years. Um, you know, but I think the taxpayers could be feel comfortable that their money's not being wasted on good food for inmates. Yeah, right? but I always was under the impression that white collar prison is kind of. A walk in the park, so to speak. I mean, you don't want to be there. Don't get me wrong. Call it, right? But yeah, what was it like? The place Madoff was. He was like the man there. Madoff, really? Yeah, that's what I understand. When he, I think he was somewhere upstate New York, I believe. Oh, right, he was in North Carolina. Sorry. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, I'll tell you how it was. So I'm the only governor. First, I want everybody out there to hear me, and by all means, question me on this. But I didn't break a law, cross the line, or take a penny. It was all politics. They threw me in prison for. I'm known. For the sale, of, the attempted sale of Obama's Senate seat, mm-hmm. Winston Churchill said a lie could travel halfway around the world before the truth truth has a chance to put its pants on. The appellate court reversed that. That was never a crime from the very beginning. They could never uphold that unlawful standard they used to convict me, but they called it that when they arrested me. And my pants are still at my knees. I can't get them all the way up because people still believe that. But it never happened. It was politics. Obama sent an emissary to me to make a political deal on the night that he won. He went to the White House for eight years. I went to the shit house for eight years. Needless to say, Obama had a better eight years than me. And he didn't do anything wrong either. It was just politics. And then they held me there for fundraising stuff where there was no quid pro quo, which is a requirement to have a bribery conviction on fundraising. It's a different standard for personal corruption if it's personal money. But no one alleged me ever taking anything like that. It was all politics. And they gave me 14 years because I'm going to give myself high marks for testicular virility, right? I fought back. I wouldn't get yeah. in. 
And if I was right, and I am, they're criminals and they're corrupt. And when you do that, and then they, they try you a second time when they fail to convict you at a first trial, and they rig the system and they use a standard the Supreme Court of the United States said was not the law to convict you, and then they got you, and they got you before the judge that they handpicked and the judge was working with them. It's like the fourth prosecutor. Well, they're going to throw your ass in prison for a long time, and they did, and they gave me 14 years. And when you're in prison for more than 10 years, it's a, a legal requirement. You can't be in those camps that you referenced. You have to be in a higher security prison. Uh, okay. So here's another historical point about me. I'm the only governor in American history to be put into a higher security prison behind what the inmates call the razor wire. I was in there with bank robbers, drug dealers, uh, gangbangers, crips and bloods, and Norteños and Sureños and Tejanos, Aryan Nation, white guy, racists, Nazi types, and murderers and bank robbers who actually, I've learned, are actually basically lovable guys. Yeah, you did okay. Like from This all started because I saw that documentary on Hulu that you did that was awesome. Mm. I wrote a blog on it about how exactly what you just said. I moved here to Chicago when all that trial was going on, and I was actually a political justice uh, major, and it was the second you the second governor in a row to be right. indicted. So exactly. it was kind of one of those things, you know, I was like, wow, Illinois is wild west. Um, right. But the story I always thought I knew was the one you just referenced where, you know, it was the one that was in the newspapers and on the news every night, um, not the actual story you just said. So I watched this documentary. I heard your own words. They did a really good job of not framing it from a biased point of view, uh, being very factual, and it was really eye-opening. And you know, um, not sitting here saying you know you were unjustly convicted or whatever, but it was just it was good to see a different point of view. Whereas you know, up until that point, it was always what the media portrayed it as. So, um, the one of the good things that they did a good job of showing though too was you talking about all the people you met while you were in prison and how you were kind of like the man back there. (laughs) Well, I was, I was the only governor there. And, uh, you know, in that first prison where I spent 32 months at higher security prison, my home was a six foot by eight foot prison cell in the camps. You get rooms or there's small rooms and there's five guys in there, but you actually have a bathroom where in the, in the higher prison, it's like the prisons that you see in movies. You know, you get, you're get you behind iron bars, and they lock you in at night, and they limit your movements all throughout the day. And uh, that little cell you're in, you share with another inmate. And in the prison I was in, there were 950 guys or thereabouts. As I said, those, all those gangbangers, a lot of drug dealers, the bank robbers, the, con- uh, the, uh, the, the, the handful of guys that committed murder, yeah. a lot of sex offenders. And uh, 2% were white-collar. Uh, just 2%, and one governor, and that was me. I had two things going for me in that world. First, there was this level of celebrity when it comes to inmates. I mean, these guys were watching me on live television actually walk into prison because they were covering it with helicopters and cameras all over the place and was on live television, on on cable, and and the national news, as I understand it. I, I was actually going into prison, so I didn't see it, but they were watching me. The other thing I had going for me was, uh, and this is ironic, and I wouldn't say it was a good thing, it was a bad thing, but I had a 14-year sentence, which is a long sentence. But in that world, 
it gives you real street cred because they know you didn't talk about anybody. You're not a snitch. Mm-hmm. And in that world, snitches are bitches who get stitches. <laughs> you hear me? You feel me, man? That's how they talk. Yeah. You feel me? I feel like someone told you that one, right? I don't I, think I, you got that one I from yourself. I saw that a lot. <laughs> and, you know, guys who have light sentences are always suspect to have been snitches. And so they're with the guys, yeah. most of them in that higher prison, who had long sentences, those guys with the light sentences have to tread very carefully or they get their asses kicked. But uh, anyway. So you're, so you're saying you maintain your innocence. Yes, Eddie, You didn't do. do anything. I didn't do anything criminal. Okay. I've certainly made my share of mistakes. Okay. So what did you do then? What, what, do, you, what, do, you, what, what do you do that you'll say that you did? Put it that way. That's the best way to frame it. I, I, uh, let me, That's not criminal. That may be a little, little hairy, we'll put it. It, on the, with regard to the charges that they brought against yes. me, absolutely nothing. Nothing. Okay. They were honest conversations. To the extent that anybody remembers any of it, mm-hmm. I'll just see if I could give a little background. They taped my telephones, and uh, they began doing that in the thir- like on the thirtieth of October two thousand and eight. They arrested me at six o'clock in the morning on December the ninth. No sitting governors ever been arrested at their homes with FBI agents and SWAT teams. And so a lot of the stuff that they're doing to Trump, I recognize all of it because they did it to me first. Mm-hmm. And I think it's among the reasons why Trump sent me home. He recognized it too. I also had that personal experience with him on Celebrity Apprentice. I don't know if your viewers know that, but I was on mm-hmm. that show. Thank goodness I was because I wouldn't be here today if I didn't get to know him a little bit on that show. And I should point out that Donald Trump, President Trump, whether you like him or not, is historic in the sense that he's the only president in American history to have fired and freed the same guy. He fired my ass on Celebrity Apprentice and he freed me from prison. Even Lincoln didn't do that. <laughs> uh, so, um, but no, I, I'll tell you what, when these people come after you, it's not like you don't know it. When you're a target like I was and they're hunting you as they were me during my entire time as governor, you know it. And so you're being extra careful. That's the great irony. Yeah. Because you don't want to do anything wrong because there's a lot of gray areas and you might stumble into something. And the irony is I'm on the telephone talking about every possible idea for the Senate seat because Obama sent an emissary to me on election night and said, Barack called me last night. He wants to, Valerie Jarrett is the senator. He'd like to talk to you and let's discuss what you want. So the next day I'm on the phone talking to my top staff in every conversation, the governor's lawyer was involved where I'm asking whether I can do these things or can't do these things. And it was in my mind that it's possible those people were listening. Mm-hmm. Never in my wildest dreams would I think they're such corrupt liars that they would then twist conversations out of context and then not play all the conversations. And your viewers need to know, they played 1% of the tapes that they made. And to this day, they won't play the other 99% of the tapes. Really? To fill out the full con- context of the conversations. So the party that covers up evidence is the one that's lying. And they're the ones who are covering it up, and they still to this day won't play those tapes. Now, will they have to play them at some point? Is there like a protection date set on them? Is there? It's like the Warren Commission and the Kennedy assassination. These motherfuckers will never play those tapes. Okay. Okay, until we're all dead and gone, and maybe in 100 years from now. Yeah. Because it'll, just, it'll, it'll reveal how dishonest they were and how corrupt it was what they did. And there's so many stories with, with regard to those tapes, and there's so many people on those tapes. And if you think I say fuck a lot, you ought to hear Rahm Emanuel talk. Oh, yeah. We were, we were just talking about him. We saw him at uh, the Windy City Smokeout, Dave and I, uh, last summer, and every other word. But does it— He likes in, the Fs. Yeah. Does it—I uh, mean, are you infuriated seeing—you know, J.B. Pritzker was on the other end of that tape that 
you know, that they did edit down and, and play. And he was the one you were talking to about, you know, the price of that seed. And, you know, he was kind of asking you questions about it. The fact that that is totally forgotten about now and he's, you know, our sitting governor and he has aspirations for the White House. I mean, how does that make you feel? Well, let's talk about that. He was everybody wanted to be the senator just about. I mean, I was at for that short period of time in that inside political world. I was like the most popular guy there was. And once I'd make that decision, then everybody's going to hate you except the one who gets it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we explored all kinds of ideas and all different types of candidates. And I was trying to think outside the box. And we spent two days talking about, should I appoint Oprah Winfrey to the Senate? Right. I was looking to appoint someone who was African-American, who was black, ideally, if I get the right kind of candidate. I was reluctant to go with the typical politicians. I, was, I charged my chief of staff to find me an African-American military hero, somebody who's not in politics, that he, who lives in Illinois. In fact, uh, we, we talked about, I mean, these conversations were for six weeks. And when I was about to actually make the final decision, and the tapes show this, they came and arrested me and stopped it. Stopped it. But back to um, what you were asking me, what was the question? It was about... Uh, Just about Pritzker. And Pritzker. Him kind of yeah. skating by unscathed. Sure. Well, he... Look, he called me and asked me to make him a senator. And JB used to work for me. He was my director of Illinois Human Rights Commission. In those days, I liked him. And uh, what happened was he uh, he called and just wanted to put his hat in the ring and suggest him as a candidate for the Senate. By the way, if I was really trying to sell a Senate seat, that's the guy. Right. He spent $350 million of his inherited money to make himself governor twice. I could have easily got a hundred million, right? By the way, that's another thing. I mean, I'm not claiming to be Einstein or a genius or the smartest guy in the room, and I did get a D in algebra, which was a classic case of great inflation. It wasn't exactly setting the world on fire in public schools in Chicago, but I'm not that fucking stupid. How are you going to get away with selling a fucking Senate seat? And at that time, Obama was a demigod internationally, the first black president of American history. How are you going? How are you possibly going to pull that off? Well, I'll get into that though, because okay. you keep saying they. Yeah. Who had it out for you? Is great, it a is it is it a was it Obama? Did, does Obama not like you? No, it, it wasn't Obama. Obama made a deal to protect himself at my expense. I do believe that. Okay. Um, and by the way, these are my best guesses. What I'm going to give your you. Best, your best. Okay. Yeah. Look, a, a dirty, rotten, corrupt U.S. attorney named Patrick Fitzgerald, and the guy that worked for him, this guy named Reed Shar, and this woman who's now a judge, Carrie Hamilton. What they do are these are these people are big game hunters. They made big names for themselves by getting big game governors. Now they're trying to get a president, okay? And they get when they do that successfully, they're able to go on and become big lawyers and big law firms and make millions of dollars, which is what happened with two of the three. The third one, Hamilton, is now a judge in Cook County, actually raising money, campaign money that she put me in, that they put me in prison for. Um, their motivation was prosecutorial abuse. Uh, unchecked, unlimited, uncontrolled power that these prosecutors have, and they've turned themselves into weaponized political operators. James Comey is another one, and he was involved in that as well. I have a theory. I don't have evidence, but I have a theory that Mike Madigan, the Democratic House Speaker, chairman of my party when I was governor, who I was fighting all the time, may have had a hand in it somehow, but I don't know that for sure, and he's now on the dock himself facing uh, issues. He was charged by a Trump appointee. Do you think anything's going to happen with that whole ComEd shit show? In my experience, when those people come after you and they're determined to get you, they 
they never stop till they get you. And when they didn't convict me at a first trial, they tried me a second time. But aren't they all his, his people? Isn't it kind of just like a dog and pony show, don't you think? Well, those prosecutors, those federal prosecutors are not his people, but the people on trial, the comment people and the other people that uh, are involved have relationships with Madigan. We'll see what happens. But I just know from my own experience that it's awfully hard. You, don't, you can't get a fair trial there the way they operate. And so if you're, you're at a chart point where they've indicted you like Madigan, uh, he's, in a, he's in a whole mess of trouble. So, so you say that though you, you rattled off some names there of some yeah. alleged people who you think might have been against you. Now, did, well, I didn't answer your JB question though, did I? Uh, I think did you I? did, right? Did I? I just said I, he'd be the guy you'd sell it to. Well, he asked for the Senate seat, and I told him I, honestly, and the tapes show that that it was unlikely that I'd pick him because I was looking for an African American candidate. He then said, "Well, I understand your black problem." That's how he called it, which is an indication really of how he sees things. He sees black people in the black community as po- political pawns in the game. And so, therefore, I had a political problem. I didn't see it a, that way at all. I saw it more as an opportunity. Obama was the only black guy in the United States Senate, and he was leaving. So there'd be 199 members who weren't African-American. At least one should be if you can get the right candidate. Ultimately, I sent Roland Burris there, who I ran against for governor. He became the senator for a little while, black man. Um, but JB, the way he talked about it, sort of indicates um, – just a mindset that sees the black community in terms of just politics, not people. And in politics, a lot of the politicians view it that way. They look at the different demographics uh, as opposed to just like a guy in the street that you might know and you might have an affinity for. And you might think, well, that's a life experience that person has. I shared that life experience myself. And hey, now all of a sudden, I'm the governor of Illinois. I'm talking about myself now. Mm-hmm. I got all this power. I could actually do something to help that guy that was on the street. See, I think JB, because he grew up with that silver spoon in his mouth um, and inherited all that money, he's been disconnected from everyday people. And it's understandable because he's a multi-billionaire. Mm-hmm. Now, now so, so so going back to that, so mm-hmm. those are the people you allege because, you know, you maintain that you, you're innocent. Mm-hmm. Now, why were you the big game? What, what problem did they have with you? What, what, did you just rub people the wrong way or what was the deal? Yeah, I think that was a lot of it. I, I, I think... I think when you take on the establishment, Madigan's the establishment in the Illinois government, been there for 43 years. Yep. Democrats wanted me, the Democratic leaders all wanted me to raise taxes on people, the income tax. I would never do it. I promised not to do it. I wouldn't do it. And I'm not saying that in politics sometimes you, ha- you, you, you must always keep every single promise you should try because sometimes you can't because circumstances change in government. You can make a promise one year and then three years later there's some disaster and now suddenly you need money to, to serve the public properly. So therefore, that's, I think, an understandable way to get out of a – to explain to the people, I'm sorry, I can't keep this promise. Circumstances have changed. We need the money. And I never had to do that. Never felt like we had to do that. But they wanted me to do it every step of the way. The Democrats did. And the Republicans in the legislature publicly wanted to say they were against it. But most of them, they wanted that tax increase too because they want more of your money. They want to spend all of that money on their special interest groups and the establishment. What I discovered when I got to Springfield was I could expand health care and give it to every single child in Illinois, which no governor had ever done in American history until 2005 when I did it, that I could actually provide more health care, affordable health care opportunities for working families. They could pay premiums that were affordable, but they could still get access to comprehensive health care, that we could give preschool to three- and four-year-olds, put more money in public education than ever before, give mammograms and pap smears to uninsured women, free public transportation for our seniors, like I said, and the disabled, and do all of that without raising taxes because I discovered when I got there 
that there were over 700 what they call special purpose funds. These are special interest groups where the money comes in from different fees and stuff every single year. And the money builds up a surplus, and it's not being used for the benefit of the people, but it's being protected by all those different special interest groups. And the guardian of all those funds was Mike Madigan. And that's how he built that big political empire, where incidentally, he became a rich man too. And his family got rich on the system as well. And so I wouldn't I wouldn't raise taxes, but I wanted to advance health care, so I needed money. So I went into those funds and would do it and fought him every year to get that money. And so after a while, when you fight him like that, and then I realized that those lawmakers were basically a bunch of chicken shit lemmings. And Madigan bought them all off by giving them committee assignments. They would get an extra $10,000 a year to sit on a committee. These are part-time people, right? But they would never do anything because the little boss man – unless he told them they could do it. And I couldn't get them. Who They go out and campaign and say they care about people. They want to help provide health care to working families and protect working families. All that bullshit you hear from candidates, right? They would never buck them. And so I started expanding my powers as the governor, the interpretations that my lawyers and I came up with that said the Constitution says I could do this. And so I would do – I would simply write – I would just do it by executive order. So I couldn't get, Mad, get Madigan to call on a bill to provide – uh, routine mammograms and pap smears for 153,000 uninsured women. If you call the bill, it's going to pass. No one wants to vote against that. So he simply doesn't call it. In the meantime, there they are. And if you're a poor woman, you don't. if, if it's, you're any woman and you don't get early detection on cancer, breast or cervical yeah, cancer, you're going to die. 95% or more uh, fatality rate. But it's a 26%, I should say 26%, a 95% fatality rate, but there's also a 90% survival rate if you get it early and a 26% survival rate if you don't. So to me, it was life and death. They wouldn't, he wouldn't call the bill, which would pass. I simply did it by myself and said, sue me. And how are they going to sue me on that? So they, when they had a chance to throw me out of office, they would use those things as examples of me uh, using my power with too much uh, liberality. Mm. My lawyers told me I had the authority to do it. I know I did. And those women did get that. Those yeah, I mean, screenings. they're pointing at noble causes. I mean, that's like that. That's how crazy it is. But just the hierarchy here, it sounds like it sounds like a gang hierarchy. Like it is. And by the way, to, to, you're right. Your point is well taken. There are political establishments in every center of government. And Springfield in Illinois is a place that Madigan controlled. He was the emperor down there. 43 years, he accumulated all that power and used it strictly for politics and his political position. And, uh, and to get rich and wealthy like his friends, that's why this ComEd trial is interesting because that was an example of how he operates. Those guys were getting no-show jobs in exchange for Madigan signing the bill that would raise rates on consumers for Commonwealth Edison. But I got to tell you, I spent six years in Washington. It's no better. I was going to. It's almost worse. I was going to ask you where would you rank Illinois in terms of how fucked we are as a state? We're how- more fucked than other states because of the Madigan factor. Because he'd been there for so long, it explains why Illinois is the highest tax state in the nation. Right, but we had. I mean, this state has had its issues before he had his stranglehold that he did at you know his peak, which was arguably when you were there. The years following that. And it's it's still in I mean, he's he's not there anymore and we're still, you know, fucked. I mean, what do you attribute that to? Is it just Illinois is, you know, been that way and people are used to it and it's always going to be that way? Is it special set of circumstances? 
I mean, I come from Massachusetts, which I thought was a pretty corrupt, you know, state and especially local politics. And I came out here and was like, wow. I mean, the whole alderman thing has completely blown my mind. I'm a local business owner here. I deal with it on every single, you know, level every day. And uh, I mean, it's like, I don't even know where to begin to kind of try to, you know, unspool everything. Mm. Well, I, I, I'd suggest some ideas, if I could. Fire and, away. And there are differences between the states. And the state you come from, Massachusetts, has a lot of similarities to Illinois. Boston is a city historically, smaller version of Chicago, older. A lot of the same demographics, you know, the Irish immigration to both cities and the kind of the old school local politics. We, I mean, we had another guy, Tip O'Neill. He was O'Neill. You know, our speaker. Sure, and he who, said, all politics is local. I was just about to quote him. And, yep. and, and there's a lot of truth to that. So there's a lot of similarities between the way they operate in Massachusetts and in Illinois. So Illinois is not the only one. There are other states like Louisiana that are sort of like that. But then there are states like Wisconsin to our north that are far more progressive when it comes to a cleaner government, better government, more open government, where there's more transparency. See, Madigan was successful for a lot of reasons. He's a real smart guy. He's very disciplined, very hardworking, um, very ruthless, remorseless, and re- relentless. And he could give a fuck about the little guy, the man on the street, or his family. None of it matters to him. He will do good when it serves his political purposes, and then he will thwart good when it serves his political purposes, and he will do not good things when it helps his political purposes. Um, That's that cynical kind of politics that he accumulated power over many decades. And in Illinois, you have this unusual situation where he was the longest-serving speaker, I think, in American history. And so basically you had this one guy creating this operation down there. And, um, and as a result, we have the kind of situation in Illinois where it's going to take some time to unravel from that old way of doing business. Now his successor, the Speaker Welch, promised all kinds of reforms to give more say to individual members, more transparency, because that was Madigan's thing. He's the quintessential backroom politician. Everything is behind closed doors. Everything had to be a political deal with that guy. That regrettable thing about this new speaker is I just read a, an article in one of the newspapers that he's now go- adopting more of the Madigan rules. Well, I mean, it's exactly what we saw with Lightfoot here in Chicago. Yeah. She ran on this, you know, she's going to break up the establishment and come to find out it's meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah, I think they threw my ass in prison because I didn't do that. I, I truly do. I, I think there was a lot of that. And you, because ruff, of, you ruffled feathers. I, yeah, and I had a lot of enemies, political enemies. And again, you know, if you're really hard, your heart's right and you want to try to push those things and check the record, those things that I talked about and other things like open road tolling, we did. Those things I really did, but they were not hard. They were hard to get. I'll give you a case in point. You would think from a moral point of view, if you can give a child access to health care, and I can't tell you the number of parents and mothers I've seen over the years I would get letters when I was in prison from moms, you know, thanking me for the All Kids program. And their heart-wrenching stories, a little baby, three years old, toddler with a brain tumor. They couldn't afford the treatment, except All Kids saved that child, and now the child's grown up to live a good life, right? I get a lot of those letters. You would think when you propose something like that and you have the money, you found the revenue source in your budget to pay for it, you present that to the legislative leaders, as I did— as the Democratic governor, 
as the Democratic Speaker of the House Madigan. The Democratic Senate President was Jones. In addition to Madigan being the Democratic House Speaker, he was also the chairman of our Democratic Party statewide. Okay, you would think they'd say, right, like you just said, good job, great. How soon can we call the bill for a vote, pass it, and you sign it? It was never like that. They, both those legislative leaders, Madigan and Jones, principally Madigan, needed to see me. And so they had to have a little summit with me at the governor's mansion. It was October of 2005. And this is not – anyway, they wanted to talk to me about that bill. And the point of it was they, they were worried about the political implications of another piece of legislation, medical malpractice reform. Because doctors across Illinois had organized and had gotten their patients, particularly senior citizens, to go to their state lawmakers and say, if you don't pass this medical malpractice reform, my doctors leave in Illinois and going across the border to Missouri or to Kentucky or to Indiana or to Wisconsin or to Iowa, right? If you don't do that, we're leaving. And so the seniors, the little ladies, and every and a lot of other people were fearful of that. And so they went to their lawmakers and said, I'm not voting for you if you can't vote for this. So they're fearful of losing their spots. They went to their bosses, their legislative leaders, Madigan Jones, Madigan in particular, and said, we're going to lose. And if we lose, you might lose the House. The Republicans will take control. Madigan had been the guy who had supported the opposition to that, that uh, malpractice reform bill. The lawyers associations, the trial lawyers, they're called. They're big contributors to Democrats. And over the years, when Republicans were in charge, and I was the first Democrat in 26 years, so there were Republican governors. There was Ryan. There was Edgar. There was Thompson for three and a half terms. Um, 26 years of them than me. And so the Republicans controlled it. And the lawyers would block that legislation by giving Madigan millions of dollars in campaign contributions. Now suddenly they got a new kid on the block, a Democrat, who shared their position that the reform bill wasn't right, was wrong. And so they were contributing a lot of money to me. They probably gave me over a million dollars my first race for governor. So they were my big contributors. So anyway, Madigan now is going to stiff them because he's got to protect his members. He's going to actually sign this, pass the medical malpractice reform, and the big contributors are going to get stiffed. I'm not going to quarrel with the decision to put you know, constituents over contributors, but Madigan's motivation was political. Anyway, they came to me and they said, are you going to what are you going to do about this medical malpractice reform? If you want your your all kids bill, health care for children, we need a commitment from you that you're not going to veto this malpractice reform for doctors and then be a hero to all those trial lawyers because in Madigan's mind, he's thinking, holy cow, this guy can call a big press conference, veto the bill, and those lawyers will redouble their campaign contributions. Right. And give me his share of the campaign contributions, too. He's Cause, thinking politically. Because the lawyers don't want to cap on tort. They, they don't want to be it. able to take malpractice suits for $100 million. Correct. They, you you guys were trying to rein that in to help insurance costs go down. and That was the argument for the malpractice. So at the, at the root of it is, as always, money. Yes and no. There's also that policy dynamic. We sh- I shouldn't dismiss that. No, no, but I mean yeah. like the campaign financing and the contributions. I mean, it seems like every single level of politics and just not even corruption, but just... Uh, Considerations. Yeah, and, and even a great you know candidate with good aspirations, it seems like you know they actually get in office and they owe all these favors for the people to the people who got them there. And it's like, they're, you know, they're polluted before they even get a chance. Well, 
Let me just defend the profession I was in a little bit. It's a a profession filled with a bunch of fucking fake politicians, don't get me wrong, and cynical politicians. But there's good and bad in everything, right? And there's levels. The whole thing is shades of gray. There's no perfect on one or the other. And you you can't do anything for anybody, achieve anything for anybody, if you don't understand that you gotta be in that game and make, make those compromises, right. okay? Winston Churchill said, the worst democracy is the worst system ever devised by man except for all the rest. I think the people out there who make their decisions and choose their candidates and elect their, their officials, basically are electing a person to make decisions and choices and set priorities and judgment calls, right? It's like a manager at a baseball team. You're going to have to make a lot of decisions during the course of a game and the course of a season. Mm-hmm. And some of them are not going to be the right ones. Some of them you got to make decisions on. You got to take a lesser, you, you got to hold your nose on a bad thing for a greater good. See, you, so in order for me to get health care for all those kids, which I believe was a great good, I had to make all kinds of deals and compromises. And, act, and, and in this particular case, to end that story, Dante, is they asked me, we, we're not going to call. We're not doing your health care bill for the kids unless you can promise us you're not going to override our veto on this mal. Or you're not going to. You're, you're going to veto that malpractice bill. And you know, Madigan said, "You know what, Governor? Why don't you, you know, take a day to think about it?" And I, 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 I spent seven seconds thinking about it. It was real simple, right? Mm-hmm. Am I going to help these kids on a, a, something that's so fundamental that it could be life saving and meaningful? The most important thing to any parent is a child. Or am I going to fuck my trial lawyer supporters who gave me over a million dollars, right? It was a no-brainer. I'm fucking the trial lawyers. The kids get health care. See, these are decisions you have to make in government. My point is I shouldn't have had to be in the position to make that political deal. Madigan should have said, this is great. Let's pass it. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it works. Now, you are documented, obviously, for being a former gold gloves boxer. Yep. Golden Gloves, excuse me. Uh, is it safe to say if you ever got back in the ring one more time, Mike Madigan would be your picked opponent? <laughs> well, you know, I'd be probably a middleweight. What would he be like? A lightweight or flyweight, maybe? Huh? Wait aside. I'm talking. Yeah. I'm talking. Who do you want to settle the score with the most? <laughs> Great question, Ed. I gotta tell you, I kick his ass so fast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we do have a fighting promotion. Would you? Would you? Would you dust up the gloves? Unlikely. Unlikely? Yeah, unlikely. They hey. might charge me with a battery if I do that. <laughs> I uh, I heard, not just from what I've read, I've heard from notable sources a uh, grandson of Jerry Marzilli that you were the real deal back in the day. God know, bless him. Do you know his son? I know, his, I know Anthony. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't know that he was your trainer. Yeah, he was. He was such a nice man, a kind man. It was at Amundsen Park, not far from Hiawatha oh, yeah. Park, where you're from, mm-hmm. the Galewood neighborhood. I lived at Cicero and Armitage, if any of your viewers know where that is. So which is. neighborhood is that? It's called Cragen. Okay. The Cragen neighborhood. It's lot, you know, like a lower working class area, a lot of factories. That's by you? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mr. D. He was further west. More trees by you. Yeah. But, uh, mm-hmm. And less factories. Yeah. But so Amundsen Park was the park that had a boxing program that was – that was close to me. The other one was La Follette Park, which is on the west side, real close to me. And I had a friend in high school named Emil Gattardo. What a great guy. He was a boxer. And uh, so I, through him, he took me to the gym and I took up boxing. You know why I did it, though? You want to hear this? How fucked up I was at 16, 17? I would love to. I read a book on Teddy Roosevelt, one of my heroes in history, one of our great presidents and a real, you know, go-getter. Badass. Real badass. And uh, the Rough Riders and all that. And uh, 
Anyway, so I, I read that he, took, he was a boxer at Harvard. He was an asthmatic child. He was very sickly, and he had to build up his body, and he overcame a lot of personal adversity to build himself into something. And so I read that he took a boxing really to challenge himself and develop his character. And I read that, and I thought, man, that's really good. In the meantime, I'm, I'm playing on the high school basketball team at Foreman, but I'm not playing. I'm sitting my ass on the bench. The coach didn't share my confidence in my jump shot <laughs> or my ability to you know, uh, drive and you know, make plays. So I thought, man, I got to do something where I'm actually going to get some playing time. So I, I went to Amundsen Park and started the boxing program. And God bless Jerry. He was a great coach and better than that, a good man. And, you know, it's a rough and tumble sport. I mean, it, oh, yeah. it hurts. And uh, he was really kind and gentle in some respects while he was building you up to be a good fighter and, and tough. And, and uh, his grandson, if you can get me his information, I sure would like to call him and say hello. Will do. Yeah. So there's really no answer for that, your opponent who you'd pick? Well, you got me thinking mad again now, you know. But uh, I had eight years in prison to kind of work on those issues of bitterness and, and anger okay. and feeling betrayed and abandoned and disillusioned with the system because I I am, on, in all honesty, I, I, it, look, I love this country. I mean, I grew up at Cicero and Armitage. My dad was a factory worker. My mom was a ticket agent for the CTA, taking fares and passing out transfers at the subway stations on the northwest side of Chicago. Um, Jefferson Park would be a place, Wicker Park, yeah. you know. The blue line. Yeah, the blue line. The uh, is that Boston. right by Georgia? Yeah, right there on Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom worked there. We lived in a five room apartment. Gale you know. Street Ribs. Yeah, it's a good yeah. place. Good place. <laughs> the best. So, uh, and then I went to public school, and like I said, I wasn't some great student. I went, you know, I had, I had some good moments, but I wasn't so great. I become the governor of Illinois, and I only in America, right? Great yeah. country. I'm really worried about our country, though. I'm worried about our democracy. I'm worried about our freedom. Because what happened to me and what they did to me, unless I'm full of shit, I'm telling you I'm not, is so disillusioning. And if they can do it to a governor, imagine the people that they do this to. And now they're trying to do it to a president. And they shouldn't do it to Republican presidents or Democratic presidents. They should not become political weapons. And I think this really is the central issue of our time, is these weaponized criminal prosecutors with uncontrolled power. And everybody's afraid of them because if they – then target their shit on you, you, you're facing the same stuff. And so therefore the political people see what's happening, but they can't do anything about it because they don't want those people going after them. And the media goes along with it because what? It sells newspapers. So our institutions have been really aren't as honest as they should be, and that troubles me as an American. Well, it's, as, as someone who, you know, who sat here, I've had a bunch of the mayoral candidates on, and I had a bunch of them in 2019. It's just a lot of politicians are full of shit. It's hard to know what to believe and what not to believe, you know? So, yeah. like, I, I don't really know. Obviously, right. respectfully, I don't know whether, you know, you're just one right. of them or if you're not. So that's why I'm like, I'm sitting here, you're telling your story. I obviously respect your point of view and your opinion. But, like, I don't fucking know if you're telling me the truth. I know. You know? That's just that's just how it is. And that's the same thing when everyone who sat in the very chair who said they're going to do this and that for Chicago. I don't fucking know either, you know? It's just I can hear you out and hear your point of view. And then I think it's kind of up to everyone to decipher and make the call. Well, that's know? right. And you know what? That's right. I was a prosecutor myself yeah. uh, for a couple of years. And uh, would you tell a jury when they have to decide the facts, when the facts are, in, when the, when the facts are being contested, right, when they're in dispute? you got to sort this out. The 12 men and women who sit in the jury are peers, but they're really not in many ways a jury of peers because how could 12 
people who are not in politics really judge the political process, right? Yep. How could me, for example, sitting on a jury judge these financial crimes in Wall Street and those venture capital guys? I don't think about that, right? So there's flaws with the system. Having said that, would you tell, would you try to encourage the people on the jury? And what I would suggest to your listeners and viewers who are voters is do the best you can to take the information in, and then you have to you have to sort it out and draw from your own experience, your own life experience, to see what makes more sense or not, to determine whether or not you believe one set of facts or the other set of facts, or maybe there's an alternative set of facts. You have to draw on your own life experience. And back to my situation, you're right to have a healthy, you know, questioning about it. Because I did get convicted. I did spend eight years in prison. But I would say to you, why didn't they play those tapes? That's a matter of undisputed fact. Those facts are those tapes are still under seal. What are they hiding? Why mm-hmm. wouldn't they play them? Why wouldn't they allow me to play those at trial? Why did the prosecutor, matter of record, go before the jury at the second trial and say to those jurors, go back into the jury room and see how many times he talks about that Lisa Madigan for the Senate deal that he's talking about, which I talked about 102 times on those tapes. He tells the jury that knowing full well they're not going to hear him because he blocked them. It's our, that was our attorney general, right? That was, that was our Madigan's attorney general who I didn't daughter. like, Madigan's daughter. I was going to hold my nose and make her senator. It, it, look, I, I got the tapes. We got all those tapes. I, and these young lawyers look into the tapes. And I know I didn't cross any lines or break laws. But I'm worried about, did I call her the C word? Did I call Lisa Madigan the C word on those tapes? So I had these young guys find out if I did and if so, how many times I did it. And I, I want to apologize because evidently I did it five or six times because mm. it was maddening to me that I was going to hand her this effing golden thing, a U.S. Senate seat. If I could get, on condition, Madigan passes a health care plan that gives every parent in Illinois access to affordable health care. That means nobody in Illinois would have been without access to health care. A big public works bill that would create 500,000 jobs and a written memorandum of understanding, no income tax increase on people. If I can get that, I'll hold my nose and make her senator. Rahm Emanuel was going to be the go-between. The idea to make Rahm Emanuel the go-between, Obama's new chief of staff, so Madigan doesn't screw me after I make his daughter senator, was Jerry Reinsdorf's. On a telephone call days before I was arrested. All this is on the tapes. This is crazy. Has this, this, have all you, of a sudden, but you, you can't get the tapes played. Have you spoken about this before? Like publicly? Sometimes, yeah. It was a long time ago I'd talk about this stuff. But yeah. I, eventually, I'd like to do a documentary film on it. And that, and that's yeah. that's, that, that's twofold, too. So yeah. that's coming from just a, a person's point of view. And you said the media, they're, they're, it's their job to sell papers and whatever. I... I would rather walk down a dark, shady alley than publicly talk about Michael Madigan on my podcast. And I'm not <laughs> kidding. That shit scares me. Those people have the fucking power. People think I'm nuts. No, Eddie is but, Eddie is very scared of the establishment. Well, yeah. I mean, I, dude, I, I, you know, it's... You're a kindred soul, man. I'm not. I yeah. love your bravado and your attitude and the double birds to... Yeah. Uh, to everything and everyone. And that's after you took the fucking, <laughs> yeah. took the punishment. After I took it up prison. the ass. Is that what you mean? No, I mean, I didn't. I, I didn't like want... your show. You can talk like this. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Did yeah. that, did I that want... happen? I didn't want to. Yeah. Did that happen? That's a fair question. <laughs> Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck no. Did I that... go down dying if they were going to try to do that. Did anybody try? Nah. No, nah, nothing close. Were there? No, nah. were there? No I one's mean, like Rod. I love that fucking hair. I, I'm there. <laughs> no. No. Would, I mean, would, not to bring it back to uh, prison, but yeah. it's just it's just so interesting. Would would you say it was not as bad or as bad or worse than you thought going in? 
that we think like watching on TV in the movies. Yeah. That, well, that higher prison where I'd spent 32 months, almost what? Almost three years, right? That was, what, years. that was in Colorado? Yeah. Yeah. That one was prison that you see on TV in the movies. That was it. it all of that. Uh, that's a bad place. It's a bad place to be. And so what was my expectation? Like word, what I was going to have? I really didn't have any fear about where I was going. I could give a fuck if anybody wanted to fuck with me. I was so fucking hurt by what happened, heartbroken that I had to leave my little girls and my wife for 14 years. Yeah. And saying goodbye was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, right? And then you walk out of this world into that place. One positive thing is with every tick of the clock, you're getting closer to home. Whereas before, every tick of the clock, you're getting closer to have to leave home. Does that make any sense? Huh? Yeah, and and that's kind of what I'm always I'm always fascinated. What was the day like? Like you said, six a.m. The SWAT teams out there, the yeah. FBI's out there. What is that like? Because you see that in the movies, but is there any specific emotion you could paint towards the what you felt in that moment? Complete shock, yeah, and disbelief. The phone rang, six o'clock. The alarm clock rang. Just a moment before the phone rang, because I had it set for six, I was going to go run that morning. I had running, my running clothes laid out. It's wintertime. Psychologically, you do that sort of thing. And, uh, and then the phone rang, and I, I hit it. I mean, uh, the alarm hit, right, buzzed, and I hit it for an extra five minutes, right? I had another five minutes to get out of this warm bed and out in the, get the cold and put those running clothes on. And, and then the phone rang. And then I jumped out of bed to answer the phone. And generally, when, you, when you're the governor, you get a call like that at 6 in the morning or 4 in the morning, which I would sometimes get. Something bad happened somewhere in Illinois. There might have been a tornado in central Illinois. There might have been a, a fatal accident in a, on a highway down in Carbondale or something. And they want me to know right away. and We have to do certain things. So I'm thinking that's one of these calls. Answer the call. The guy's very professional. This is agent so-and-so with... Governor Blagojevich, uh, we're at your front door. Quickly, please come down. We have a warrant for your arrest. It's kind of like that, right? I'm in a sleepy haze still. You know what I say? I think it's a friend of former state rep, state senator Jimmy DeLeo, who's in the leadership in the state senate. Hiawatha Park. I'm from Hiawatha yeah, Park. You got Jimmy, who's a real good guy, right? And he likes he likes to joke around, fuck around. And I say, come on, Jimmy, fuck, stop fucking around. It's six o'clock in the morning. What's the matter? Right, and then the guy says, "No, this is agent so and so. Hold on a minute." And he hands over the phone to uh, one of my security detail guys because I've got security around my house. Mm-hmm. Right? No, governor, they're really here to arrest you. What? I said, "Hold on." So I put him on hold. I have another line on the call. I call. I get my assistant to get my governor's lawyer on the phone right away. She tracks him down immediately. When you're the governor, you get people right away. When you're next governor, you can't get anybody. Okay, <laughs> at least for a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and he gets on the phone. I told him what was happening and, you know, okay. And I got, I got to get back on the phone with the FBI. And so our, our girls were sleeping in bed. They hadn't gotten up for school yet. My little Annie was five and my daughter Amy was 12. And uh, no governor's ever been arrested at their home. And by the way, you arrest somebody for two reasons. One, that person's a threat to the community. 
So you arrest them just to prevent them from hurting anybody. So the governor's not going to hurt anybody. Or they're a flight risk. Or they're, a flight risk. Exactly yeah. right. I'm not. Where am I going? Am I going to run away really? No, they so wanted to make a show. They did. And they had SWAT teams around. And then they got in the house and they... <laughs> SWAT. SWAT teams, right? This is... SWAT teams surrounding my house, right? And, uh, and then they handcuffed me and escorted me to the car. Patty was up, my wife. And um, I probably left the house around, I don't know, 620, 620. It was a drizzly morning, gray. It was, it was dark, but getting starting to turn to gray. And uh, once we started driving, I'm in the backseat handcuffed, this... FBI agent Grant says, you know, I asked him, what, why are you doing this? What, what is this? And they said, the sale of the Senate seat, attempted sale of the Senate seat. My first thought was, what? This is so fucking preposterous. No one's going to believe this. I'm thinking it's so crazy. The media is going to make a joke of it. And that was among the many hard lessons I learned about the dishonesty of the system, that media could give a fuck about what the truth is. The story was just too big. They couldn't avoid it and ask, wait a minute, could this really happen? Could this governor, as crazy as we think he might be, be that stupid and that corrupt when the FBI has been chasing him for six years anyway and he knows it? You see, that's another fact I would ask the jury to consider. Common sense. I mean, if you're, you know you're being chased, are you really going to do something like that on the telephone? But anyway, um, so, that, so they had me in custody. And they took me to a facility on Roosevelt Road. Um, and at that point, they were the good cop. And that's when they talk to you and they try to get you to admit that you did something wrong and then talk about somebody else. That's where the snitching comes in. You're not a bad guy, they're saying. You're a product of Chicago politics. We heard these tapes. They wanted me to talk about Obama. They wanted me, I truly believe, this is my belief. They wanted me to do to Obama what my chief of staff, John Harris, cowardly did to me. And that is basically admit to something that's not a crime. And in exchange for that, you get a light sentence. And then you testify against the guy higher than you. The way it works is, Eddie... When you're a target and that you cooperate, it's somebody higher than you, not lower than you. And there's nobody higher than a governor except the president. Even we're higher than senators because there's 50 governors. So they don't want me to talk about anybody but Obama in my view. Maybe some other people in Chicago politics. But my, my belief was if I'm actually going to tr try to sell the Senate seat, Obama clearly, the evidence was clear, had sent the emissary to me and the guy was going – back saying, well, I'll run it up the flagpole, see if this works, proposing possible deals, right? They wanted me to talk, I believe, about Obama. My guy, Harris, the chief of staff, puts, you know, portrays himself as this tough military guy. At first, when you read his FBI interview, he's saying, what are you doing talking about? Show me the crime. You guys are naive. This is politics. But they clearly scared him about a long prison sentence, and within a day, he capitulated made a deal, pled guilty to something the appellate court eventually ruled was not the, a crime. His reward was 10 days. That's all he did. Was to conspire with me to sell a Senate seat. He got 10 days. I get 14 years. Now, he pled guilty to something that's not a crime. And I understand the choice he had. Three little boys and a wife and his boss. I think from the standpoint of that, I can't quarrel with his choice. I understand it's to protect his family. So he's got to do it to me. But I wouldn't do it to Obama because I wasn't going to do it to me. See, because if I would agree to that, I probably could have got 20 days. I don't know. I'm guessing. My point is these were Republican prosecutors appointed by George W. Bush. I learned later on that Rahm Emanuel was called by this guy Fitzgerald before they arrested me. And they told that they were going to come to my house and arrest me because Rahm was designated to be Obama's chief of staff. He was my congressman at that time. 
Now, that's completely inappropriate because he's a principal person, a party to the case. He's all over those tapes talking to me about the Senate deal and what I should do advising me. So for Fitzgerald to call him, that's uh, misconduct by the U.S. attorney. I think they went to Obama right away and basically said, after they realized I wasn't going to do anything, I told them I can't, I've, I've done nothing wrong and I have nothing to talk about. When, after I did that, I believe they went to Obama right away and made a deal. This is my belief. I don't know for a fact. It's my best guess. And the deal was, you'll be, don't replace us because the new president appoints a new U.S. attorney of the other party. So it would have been a Democratic U.S. attorney. See, they didn't replace these people. They stayed. These Bush appointees stayed until they got me in prison. And the moment they got me to prison, they all went in the private sector and made millions of dollars. I think Obama made a deal basically. Okay, he's on his own. I won't do anything to help. And I'll, he's going to have to rise or fall on his own. And they would leave him alone and not chase him. That's, what I, that's my belief. Yeah. Um, anyway, after they, got, they had me in custody and they saw that I wasn't going to be cooperative, they transferred me to the Dirksen building downtown and put me in a little cell, real small, very different from where I had been on Roosevelt Road, where they allowed me to walk around. And they put me in this little cell and locked me in there for a few hours. And they had me next to this guy that was all drugged up, really angry, some gangbanger, violent guy. And he was like, had no clue who I was that he could give him. He could care less. And I think they were sending me a message. And then eventually I uh, had to go before the magistrate about 1.30 in the afternoon. And I saw Harris, my chief of staff, who would, who would surrender the next day and plead guilty to something that's not a crime that he knew wasn't a crime to get 10 days and he's dressed up in a suit and I'm in these running clothes and uh, he's nervous and two weeks before am I giving you too long long of a story no I'm interested yeah two weeks before we were flying back from Springfield on the governor's plane and we were chatting about um, Mayor Daly he used to work for Mayor Daly he was Daly's budget director and he was in, he had a big position with the Chicago Police Department before he worked for me and I asked him I said John let me ask you something Who's harder to work for, me or Mayor Daly? And he says to me, oh, Daly was so much harder. You know, he gets angry, yells and screams. You know, it's really tough taskmaster. You're a breeze next to him. Unbeknownst to us, two weeks later, the two of us would get arrested at 6 o'clock in the morning, right? I don't see him all morning until that 1.30. We're on the other side of the courtroom. We're about to walk in before the magistrate for a bond hearing. I know it's going to be a shitstorm. The media's going to be wall to wall, and the focus will be me, not Harris, Right. I see Harris for just a second, a fleeting second before they call us in. He's looking really nervous, dressed up in a suit. And I said, John, I got a question for you. Now let me ask you this. Who would you rather work for, me <laughs> or Mayor Daly? <laughs> that's, that's great. That's great. What do, you, uh, what do you make of the current situation? Obviously, we're a week out from the runoff here in Chicago uh, for the mayoral election. I mean, you're a Chicago resident, lifelong, right? Besides, lifelong. besides your travels. No, and I mean your <laughs> your term. You know, the governor's mansion's in Springfield. Yeah. So, uh, also, what was that like? What was that like growing up and living in what I think is the best city in America? And then, no offense to Springfield, but having to go live down there. Well, yeah. is that a little culture shock? Well. First of all, I grew up in a five-room apartment with one little bathroom, and my brother and I shared a bed, my older brother and I. 
And then I'm in the governor's mansion with 50,000 square feet and 36 people working there and serving you. But at the same time, you yeah. went to Pepperdine. I did. That is known as like the most beautiful college campus in the U.S. pretty much. It's yeah. kind of crazy for me to think we're talking the northwest side of Chicago. Yeah. We're talking prison. We're Wait, talking you went to Springfield. I did. In Malibu? And Malibu. Yeah. <laughs> this guy, oh, that's, this, un- that's unbelievable. You've seen every, like, every scope of... Yeah, you see movie stars there all the time, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had a part-time job at the Malibu Nautilus, and Olivia Newton-John, so pretty. She just passed away. God bless her. Mm-hmm. She's working out there. Michael Landy, he had passed away from pancreatic cancer. He's he's working out and grunts a lot when he was bench-pressing on those Nautilus machines. You see these people. I mean, I can go on and on, all the movie stars. Of course, there's a lot of pretty girls there, right? Yeah. You ought to see my grades, man. C minus. <laughs> C minus. I don't blame you. Yeah, but yeah. I did pass the bar exam the second time around. Yeah. So, all right. So you're in Springfield and you're in prison. What do you miss the most about Chicago? Well, let me just say this. I, we didn't live in the governor's mansion. I took a lot of political heat for this. We had a decision to make as a family, Patty and I, my wife and I. Our little girls were little. And the decision was, are we going to raise them in the governor's mansion in a company town where it's all politics. You know, there's some state capitals like Boston, like Nashville, Tennessee, like Austin, Texas, where they got other things going in those capital cities. But in Illinois, Springfield is all politics, all government. There's nothing else for the most part. And so, and you're the big shot because you're the governor. And so everybody down there kisses your ass when you're the governor. And uh, we got a glimpse of what it was going to be like for our little girls when we baptized my daughter, Annie, because she was born when I was governor. She was born in April of 2003, and and then we baptized her down at the governor's mansion in June of 2003. And we got a glimpse of how people were going to treat our kids, and it was artificial. They were princesses. They weren't like just little girls. And Patty and I felt like this isn't a healthy place for them to grow up. We're, just gonna, we're gonna instead stay home in Chicago, and I'll do what I did when I was a congressman. I'll commute to Springfield, and I won't. We won't make the governor's mansion a personal residence. Now, I knew I was gonna pay a political price for that, because the people down there understandably think this guy's a Chicago snob. They got that downstate thing, you know, that you're talking about and mistrust of Chicago, understandable. And there they were down in, in Springfield and Cardinals fans. Well, yeah, it, but Springfield's kind of mixed. It's more Cardinals and Cubs, but a lot more Cubs. You won't find any Cub fans down in Belleville or Carbondale, right? Yeah, it's, it's strong, yeah. strong Cardinal base there. Right. But what happened was I went from 43% of the vote in the general election in 2002 in Sangamon County, which is Abraham Lincoln's county, to 20.7% of the vote when I ran for re-election in 2006 in Sangamon County. And I think a lot of it had, a lot of it had to do with the fact that, that we didn't live in Springfield. Yeah. But we made the right decision. However, had they tried to arrest me, had we lived in the governor's mansion, they'd had, they would have had to gone through the gates. It would have been, I suppose, a little more difficult for them to do it. <laughs> so then get into that, too. What are you? Any thoughts on the current Chicago mayoral election? Yeah, I do have thoughts. I, I'll show you some of the political analysis. I, I'm, gonna, I'm voting for a candidate, but I don't want to endorse that candidate or say I'm for that candidate because yeah. I don't want to hurt my candidate. Yeah. But, um, no, I think it's going to be a real close-run thing. It's going to be a hard run at the end between now and then. It's been a... Negative campaign, which is understandable, when the stakes are that high. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a it's a race that pits two different Democrats. Um, one more moderate, one sort of represents the sort of far left wing of the Democratic Party, and it's a race in a big big city that demographically is uh, one third of the voters would would be black, one third a little bit more than one third would be white. Uh, 
Maybe 29% of the vote might be Latino, but the voter turnout Latino community generally is lower than in the black and the white community. There's a percentage of an Asian vote. There's a substantial and influential gay community vote. And all of that will come and will play to bear. There's the millennial vote now, um, the new generation that grew up when I was gone. And and all of that will, will come to bear in this race. And, and in many ways, it's a uh, microcosm of the struggle between the Democratic Party today, and that is that more moderate part of the Democrat Party and the more liberal, Extreme. socialist Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do you see there being a place for more middle-of-the-road, moderate, you know, Democrats, you know, from your party as we continue along, you know, this path we're going? I think there's a political realignment going on in America that where people are crossing over and traditional Democrats are leaving the Democrat Party and joining this new Republican Party that Trump has put together. And I think a lot of the, the I think a lot of the hot rhetoric and the anger and the vitriol on both sides, some of it is growing pains because that's happening. It's just, there's a disruption going on at the grassroots level, and these things are changing. There's also demographic changes in America. So, for example, states that were 50, 50 you know, sort of purple states, like Illinois used to be, have become a lot more blue because a lot of people are leaving Illinois, and they're going to states that were purple but making them more red. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Florida now is overwhelmingly a Republican state. Ohio is really a Republican state now. And people are migrating. You know, Colorado used to be one of those purple states, lean a little Republican. Now it's pretty much more of a Democrat state. Uh, so there's that demographic going on in America, and that's shifting. Arizona is a state that demographically has shifted, and it's, it's no longer a, a safe Republican state. Georgia, too. Anyway, you can go on. It's happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. But I think that's happening, too, as people are also realigning with their political parties. And I think today's Democrat Party, there really is little or no room for, um, you know, what, what used to be those kind of traditional working-class, JFK-type Democrats. I mean, such as yourself. Yeah, I, I like. Yeah, maybe somebody like me, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, we'll have to see how it unfolds. And the Republican Party's changing, you know, and, and one of the reasons they hate and again, I, I know people don't like Trump, but I always am going to love the Trump because, Jesus Christ, look what he did for me. He didn't have to do it. And I saw a side of Trump on a personal level people don't get to see because I worked with him at Celebrity Apprentice long before there was any thought he'd ever run for office. I mean, it's... This was October of 2009 when I was on that show. That's when he fired me, right? Yeah. Never in my wildest dreams am I thinking he's ever going to run for public office, much less be president of the United States. I'd find my ass in prison. You right? must have been stunned in that place when you found out what was going on with all that, right? It's like you're sitting in prison and you're like, wow, the guy, this guy from The Apprentice, he's really going to win? You want to hear a story? Yeah, of course. Okay, so uh, so I'm governor, first Democrat in 26 years, and I'm like the second youngest governor in Illinois history. I was young. I, I mean, my political career, I mean, I rose fast, and I fell even faster, right? But at that point, I was viewed as a guy that could run for president. And it was like two years before Obama. Obama was the one to ultimately fit that space. Um, But so I was getting invited to go to Hollywood and go to New York from people I didn't know that wanted to raise money for me. Yeah, you run a bunch of late-night shows, I remember. Well, I was defending myself, fighting back against those people. But at this time, I was before my troubles. It was my first year as governor. And uh, it was the year I got to go to Sylvester Stallone's house. What a great guy. Got to know Elvis's wife. 
took her to a Bears Packers game. Yeah, we got to, we got to, we got to talk have about a, that. I had an Elvis note here too. Yeah. So. Yeah, and then so I came. I was invited to go to New York, and Schumer from New York, one of his big fundraisers, wanted to meet me, and um, do a fundraiser. And so he invites me out to New York. Got a lot of wealth, Oyster Bay, and uh, he's going to do this meet and greet in New York City in Manhattan for his guys to meet me. And then afterwards, we're going to Madison Square Garden to watch his fighter who's fighting for the heavyweight championship of the world against the current mayor of Kiev in Ukraine, Klitschko. Remember Klitschko? Oh, yeah. He was the heavyweight champion at that time, December 2003. We get front row seats because he owns the, it's the fighter and he's got these seats. Madison Square Garden, a bunch of fights. I, I know boxing. I have boxed golden gloves. The moment this guy walks in the ring, you know, he hadn't been training. This won't be long. <laughs> and Klitschko knocks him out in the second round. At that time, I'm the governor. I've got security with me, and they, there's a team of security, the way they operate. And there's a group that goes ahead of the ones that stay with the, with the governor and the governor's family. And it was just me. It was my host and uh, uh, a friend of mine who came with me on that trip who would be my fundraiser. And so they're, the advance team goes ahead and they commandeer you. And by the way, I still struggle when I'm on my own traveling because I'm so used to people just saying, go here, go there, go the rest, you know, right? And I, I got back from Arizona the other day and I was like lost. I almost had going to miss my flight because I couldn't find out where that gate was and how you get there. So anyway, it, back to 2003. <laughs> it's hilarious. They, uh, they commandeer this freight elevator. I see the guys ahead of me commandeering a freight, taking control of a freight elevator to get me out of Madison Square Garden fast. But inside that freight elevator is this striking, beautiful, tall, clearly international model with jet black hair. You know, couldn't take my eyes off her as we're walking closer. And next to her eyes, I glance, oh, take a double. That's Donald Trump. That's that real estate developer billionaire who's, you know, a real kind of a personality People Magazine guy, right? I had met him one time before briefly, but that I don't know him. Except I met him the one time at a fundraiser George Steinbrenner held for me the year before. And Trump came and gave me a check. But I didn't talk to him too long. So there he is in the elevator. My security details pulling him out. And her, this woman, his date. They tell him to get out. They comply. Trump waits on the side with this striking, beautiful woman. I walk towards that elevator. I see him. They, my guys escort me in. I say, oh, Donald, please come in. Take a ride with us. Okay? And the woman comes in with him. Fast forward to May of 2015. I'm in my inmate clothes in prison, inmate number 4089242. Trump's announcing for President Trump Tower going down the escalator. A bunch of guys are watching it on TV. They got the different TVs. You got to have headphones. I didn't have headphones, but I sat down to just a glance at it in the middle of my job, sweep mopping and sweeping floors. That was my job at that time, right? I'm taking a break to go see this. I see Trump come down the, ele- the elevator. I see the woman with her sort of sandy color brown hair, like a darker, like a brown hair. But that's her. And I said, holy cow, Trump married her. And she lightened her hair. I'm thinking that. And then my third thought was, holy fuck, he might win. He may be my last line of defense. I sure am fucking glad I invited him into that freight elevator. (laughs) That's unbelievable. (laughs) Because if I didn't, I'm telling you, he's the type of guy who'd remember that. And I should still be in prison until May of 2024. Yeah, he would know that. Right. Well, let's, (laughs) we could kind of end on the Elvis stuff because I was curious about that too. What did you think of the movie? I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. I thought that there was a lot of uh, real good stuff in there that was legit and truthful. I will say one thing. 
I don't think he was that unhappy. Um, I think Elvis was, look, he, he, he went from rags to riches and being Elvis. All those beautiful women getting laid like he was, Hollywood all those years. You couldn't be unhappy during those years. I think he and I got to know some of the Elvis people. His best man man was a guy named Joe Esposito, who was from Chicago when I became governor. The things you get to do when you're governor <laughs> is you can find people. And he he met Elvis in the army, and he was there with the day that Elvis died. And uh, best man at the wedding, been with Elvis since the late '50s and all the way till the day he died on the 16th of August, 1977. And Joe would hang around with me when I was governor, and uh, I actually got him some work where he was able to earn some money. But he would tell me all these Elvis stories and what it was like making those movies, some of the women he was sleeping with and all those things. And uh, he wasn't that unhappy the way that movie made him sound. I think there was a lot of truth the way they portrayed the colonel overworking him the way they did at Vegas. He gradually got addicted on those prescription drugs. They needed those drugs to get him energized to keep doing two shows a night. It was a grind. And, uh, you know, so in that respect, it was very accurate. The early years, his upbringing, I thought was very good and very accurate. Generally, I give it high marks, the movie. Yeah, because you're like a dedicated Elvis fan. Yes. Yeah, so that's I should have disclosed that before I asked I that. just got done singing a couple of songs publicly, believe it or not, and they haven't yet thrown me back in jail. But it's a place called Martyrs on Lincoln Avenue with uh, my lawyer's band, The Drawers. I want to plug The Drawers. They're terrific. They're musicians. They're really good. And they let me sing two songs every time they perform, which is great. And I, Of course, I sing Jailhouse Rock. I was going to say that. Was that the weekend you got out? No, we just did it. We just did a performance. There was a we we got a video sent to us. I think it might have been the weekend you got. I was very shortly after you got out of you singing Jailhouse Rock. We posted it. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, was that the was, fundraiser for Steve and Michael? Maybe, maybe. I think that was the, yeah. that was what it was. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. What are your? Uh, give us your top three or top five Elvis all time songs. Yeah, because so many of them, right? And so yeah. hard. I mean, Suspicious Minds. I love that. Great, great song. Phenomenal. Look, now I have to say Jailhouse Rock because fuck, I lived it, right? (laughs) I know all five verses. The drummer boy was from Illinois and he went crash, boom, bang. Did you know the drummer drummer boy was from Illinois? No, I did not. Yeah. Uh, So I would say Suspicious Minds, Jailhouse Rock has to be there. Um, Probably Don't Be Cruel because I sing it a lot now. It's one of the songs I sing. Um, You want five of them? (laughs) Burning Love. Top three is good. Burning Love. I mean, there's so many. In the Ghettos are great. There's so many good songs. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, Rod, this was, this, was, this was a fun chat. It was very interesting. I got one thing that I want to ask before we wrap up that I think I've always wanted to ask you, uh, especially since learning more about you. Um, kind of like the Pete Rose question. If The mm-hmm. one thing the documentary did a good job of was kind of leaving your story open-ended. Your future. Um, this is definitely, you know, you you said how much you love this country. I also agree with you. For all its flaws and warts, I still think it's the best place on the planet. Um, it's also very forgiving and offers a lot of second chances. Um, I would love to see you run again. I'm not trying to sit here and tell you. I think you should, but um, seems like you're one of the, you know decent people that you know could actually affect change did affect change um you know at all levels you were you know a part of but it seems like there's no chance that 
the powers that be are going to allow that. So what I was wondering is if they if the question was posed to you, if you admit to doing wrong and say you're sorry and apologize, will forgive you and let things go away and will allow you, you know, kind of clemency and, you know, you know, let bygones be bygones. Would you would that change your stance on things right now or are you still you know mm. maintaining your stance no I, w- I could never do that no that'd be like um compromising with the devil right it'd be like surrendering to the nazis uh during world war ii i know what the truth is and i know how corrupt they are it isn't even so much about clearing my name anymore as it is about exposing those corrupt prosecutors that's how i can serve my country by exposing what how they can twist how they can cheat how they can lie how they can frame an innocent man. Because what I'm telling you, what I'm telling you is true, that they used fake law to convict legal things at two trials and arrest a governor twice elected by the people and get him thrown out of office. They hijacked the governor. How can that not be criminal? How is that not any different than a dirty cop who plants a murder weapon to frame an innocent man? Now, I got eight years, would have been 14, well, 12 and a half, good behavior, right? I'd be there till May of 2024 had it not been for Trump. If I made a deal with them, I would have gotten, who knows? They were dangling 18 months after the first trial when they failed to convict me, if I would just say that. And I could never do it because I was a governor elected by the people in a country I love. And to give in to that is to give in to something that's evil and is a threat to our republic. Now, I may sound like a guy that's so full of shit, but I'm telling you, I paid the price. It's not like my talk is without the walk. I walked and did eight years in prison because I would never give in to those motherfuckers. So to ask to answer your question, fuck no, never. And I'd rather not be in government or politics, but my goal in life is to expose what they did. That would be a great way to serve our country. And it's not just those people, it's others. One more thing. The Arthur Anderson Insurance uh, Accounting Company was destroyed by prosecutors like that. They criminalized things that weren't crimes. The The Supreme Court took the case, ruled nine to nothing, that the things they said Arthur Anderson did were criminal were not crimes. But the damage was done. They destroyed that company, and hundreds of people lost their jobs. So these uncontrolled prosecutors are hurting people, and they're the biggest threat to our freedoms in America. So I'll never stop fighting them, and I'd rather be the dog catcher than you know, give in to that. Is that a good way to end? That was a strong, yeah, strong, was uh, strong way to is end. This the, is this my camera? That's your camera. Am I talking to your viewers right now? Yeah, you know what you're fucking doing, Rob. Yeah, I see you. You're you're all, you always ask you, like, it's, it's, which is my camera. You know. You Can know I do a closing doing. thing to your viewers? Yeah, what do you want to do? Just one piece of gentle advice to all of you out there. You ready? Yeah. Stay the fuck out of politics. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. And on, uh, on that note... I don't know what the fuck's true, so I'm just going to say everything's alleged. Uh, don't sue this show. Don't sue me. I don't know if this guy did it or if he didn't, but I like talking to you. Thanks, Eddie. Same here. Enjoy yeah, talking I to you. I enjoy talking to you. And Dante. Thank great. you, Dante. Thanks for, thanks for coming, Governor. All right. That's it, everybody. Thank you for watching. Uh, have a good weekend. We'll see you all on Monday.